This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what happens to a forest after a fire? UBC zoology professor Chris Harley tells us that our ecosystems recover from massive damage caused by extreme weather quite quickly. And in fact, some plants can't grow without fire. We return to Ukraine with advocate and lawyer Stepan Berko. He shares the civilian experience at war to this point and tells us what Ukrainians are now fighting for, plus an interesting conversation about the contrast between war crimes and children playing out in the yard. The greatest outdoor show on earth is about to kick off in calgary and as we celebrate some of these summer festivals that we've missed for a couple of years we play game showy with trivia to party with it we play a round of calgary stampede trivia on the shift daily podcast this is the shift podcast it's game showy that's right It is the game show about game show things that is called Game Show Weed. That's how much time and effort we put into this show. It's a very special edition of Game Showy. Our theme this weekend is the Calgary Stampede. Here's your host, Ryan O'Donnell. Well, shoo-wee, that's right there, Shane. We're going all out country. To celebrate the stampede kicking off this here weekend i can i can only keep that up for so long yes we are going calgary stampede trivia now it's not just the stampede although i could easily put together a trivia show with just absurd facts about calgary's massive country festival and rodeo Ooh. but can i come up with some couple of sample questions yes brendan how many uh, budweiser's does it take for ryan wow. o'donnell to dance in the go-go cage uh, Ryan O'Donnell. Well, he's what? He's 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 like five foot zero. Uh, so yeah. about about half about half a Budweiser, <laughs> half a beer. There you go. Okay. Uh, how, how many shots of Viagra does it take for him to lose his glasses during Deruth's uh, uh, sandstorm? Sandstorm. Uh, stampede. Half. Half a Viagra. See, there you go. It's just like that. Just like that. Nailed it. I wish Nailed I had it. control of the buzzer at this moment. But I have put together a more substantial trivia game here, my friends, with three categories, okay? The first is all things cowboy, okay? Western cowboy and facts about cowboys and ranching and all that fun stuff. Pretty sure that's southern cowboy, but okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just, it goes hand in hand. Uh, Then there is specific trivia about the Calgary Stampede, the Uh Stampede, that category, and finally, Uh country music. All things important to the Calgary Stampede. So the rules are simple. This is a game of trivia. You, you two contestants, will pick a category and a value for a question. Today, by the way, we are playing for cans of Bud Light. So uh, in true true Calgary Stampede fashion. Uh, If you get your question right, you will hear this sound. Let's see what it says there. If you get it right, you will. uh. (laughs) I know what I'm reading. I'm missing a word. I clearly had a Bud Light while writing this. I'm getting into the spirit. If it's wrong, however, now we're doing something interesting on this episode of Game Showy. We're doing something interesting. Interesting. Wow. Yes. If you guys get the the answer wrong, your (sighs) opponent will have five seconds to steal the points 
if they know the answer. Five seconds. I've got a timer and everything. You can also use the text line. However, you must use the answer provided by the listeners. So if you're listening and you know the answer, get ready. 877-399-9898. Text it in. Again, we're playing for cans of Bud Light with a value of up to three cans is the most you can ask for in a single question. And those are the toughest questions. Without further ado, we're ready to get into Country Game Showy. Calorie right. Stampede. Let's hit it. That's right. We're here to get into it with Game Showy about the Calgary Stampede. Okay, I need to. Oh, I was going to flip a coin, but my coin's gone. I hmm. took your guys' advice and I. I don't have a coin. All right, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Shane goes first. Oh, Done. Awesome. Zoom wow. calls. I don't trust that, but okay, sure. <laughs> All right, Shane. Okay, so I get to go pick, first. You do, yes. Please pick a And what's different now, if I get it value. wrong, he can steal it. Yes, he can. He'll have five Ooh, seconds. That changes things. Okay, so I'm going to start yes. with, um, I'm going to start with, Oh, goodness. I'm going to start with Stampede Two Cans, please. I want to win two Stampede, cans of Bud. Stampede Two Cans of Bud. Okay. Shane, one mm-hmm. of the most exciting events at the Calgary Stampede is the chuck wagon races. Yes. Which, by the way, this year are different. Three chuck wagons at a time. So there's more space for the horses and the drivers to maneuver. So it should be yeah, they used to safer run four, and more. Yeah, the Eastern Four should be a more interesting uh, race as it is. Here's your question: What is a chuck wagon? What was Ooh. the original purpose of a chuck wagon? Is it a know. saddle brand, a okay. nickname for a bad cowboy on a uh, on a buggy, a train car <laughs> stocked with ground beef, or what the cook drives that's loaded with supplies? Oh, uh, I. I think that the Charles wagon, uh, I think the cook's uh, name was Charles. Yeah. He was very fancy when he drove his wagon. It's my Charles wagon the with Charles all my wagon. supplies and food. That was oh, his, that was your answer? That was oh, his my answer. God. That yeah. was, okay, yeah, that was correct, yes. <laughs> yes, drives the chuck wagon around loaded with supplies oh excellent there you go two cans See? of bud light chef charles for shane that's very nice that was an yes. uh, interesting answer Sh- uh, four Brendan. times drunk four Ryan's times beer. drunk very nice yeah i don't drink beer so I, much beer that i do win i'm just gonna give to shane yeah thanks buddy fair yeah, enough no problem <laughs> okay well the incentive is low for brendan yeah your incentive week. is low i feel like so the incentive can... is low as like cans of gas i don't drive a hairspray a few weeks ago like i don't <laughs> yeah. know what's going on here <laughs> you, maybe you should join the meeting earlier yeah. in the day <laughs> i'll do stocks of broccoli next time how about oh, that that'll be the point value perfect. good all right okay please pick a cat at gold uh well i know nothing about any any of this um so let's go with um all things cowboy. Cowboy. Four. How many cans? Oh, yeah, that. Uh, three. Three. Ooh, heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, why okay. not? All right, here's a question. Cowboys, we we think of cowboys as being, you know, this time capsule. Back in two, three hundred years ago, John Wall and all that. But there are still cowboys that still do cowboy things. And here's the question, Brendan. How many cowboys are left in Canada? Is it under 20,000? 
60,000, 150,000, or 85,000? Um, 85,000. 85,000. Does that include Stampede Cowboys? Like dress up cowboys? No, cowboys? no, no, no. Because then the popular, then it would be like 1.3 million. That's what I'm cowboys. Confusing. Um, okay. So the 2016 Canadian Agricultural Census identified just under 85,000 people who worked on farms and ranches, primarily made for money for beef production. Yes, there are 85,000 working cowboys. Wow. Yeah. I've never been to Calgary, he says. I don't know any of the answers, he says. Oh, I read guess. books on the weekends, he says. He's a good guess. Here you go. Three beers okay. for you. Three beers. <sighs> Thanks, bud. All right. Three beers, Brennan, in the lead with one can of Bud Light. Shane, you're up next. Well, I think it would be safe for me to go with... Um, I really want to stay away from the country music category because <laughs> I don't really don't know. Uh I'm about three cans, so he's at three cans, and Brennan Kelly, he he's committed. So, oh goodness, I'm gonna tell you oh. the three can questions are tough. This game, all three categories have a tough three oh, can question. Scaring me. Okay, um, I'm gonna go for two cans of Stampede trivia. Okay, it's two cans. The free Stampede breakfast is probably the best part of the entire thing, at least in my opinion. Free breakfast for anyone who shows up in Calgary. Come on. Awesome. Now, it's been a tradition since 1923. Back then, Jack Morton, also known as Wild Horse Jack, moseyed on downtown with his chuck wagon and cook stove and served up some hot cakes for the hungry crowd. How many pancakes are made and served each year for the Stampede Breakfast? Over 1 million, 500,000, 200,000, 700,000. I'm going with 200,000 there, Bob. Two hundred thousand there. Well, that there, uh, that's correct there, Bob. Well done. Yes. Two hundred thousand free pancakes will be served up this morning, I believe. Uh, it's spread out usually across Sneaky Peak in a couple of days here and there. But pancakes and the Stampede go together like pancakes and waffles. So, uh, or syrup, but also syrup. waffles. Why not both? Well, hey man, nothing says yummy pancakes like a waffle on top. Yeah. <laughs> I worked at the breakfast. I'm just thinking about breakfast. I'm sorry. Mm, <laughs> All I can think about is breakfast and sausage. Uh, okay. Right. Well, uh, we now have a one one can lead for Shane. Brendan right behind with three cans. Uh, yeah. Brendan, you're up next, my friend. Uh, I guess I, I got to go with country music. Country, yeah. No one's picked that music category guy. yet. And I just, you know, right. to be a well-rounded radio show and game show here, oh, okay. uh, I should oh, look go. Look at you. Yeah. Uh, uh, so then I'll go for two cans so that I could take two a one-point lead. Okay. Maybe. Okay, uh, let's do this one. Which country music star wrote and first recorded "I Will Always Love You," the song oh, which later on. became one of the biggest selling singles of all time? Oh, for I know this one. It's not a two-can question. I don't even need the multiple choice. <laughs> okay, please, please present. Uh, do, um, it was Dolly. Dolly Parton. It was Dolly Parton. Yes, it was Dolly Parton. Yes. <sighs> Come on, man. Yes. It doesn't matter if it's easy. You guys both got every single question right so far. You should be thrilled. Yeah, here's we two more beers game. for you. Yeah. All right. Brendan is five beers deep and Shane is four deep. So it's this Calgary <laughs> Stampede in the spirit deep. of you need to get more in. You need more. You gotta uh, well, I've had four beers at the Calgary Stampede so far, so that basically means I'm still at the Pancake You're Breakfast. Broke. Let's go with... Um, let's go with... Uh, let's go with... 
let's go with two cans for all things cowboy. Oh, God. Yep. I'm just thinking I own a horse. I'm about to embarrass myself. Okay. All right. What happens at a cowboy roundup? Do the cowboys count the calves? Do the cowboys take cattle to the water? Do the cowboys take cattle to another ranch? Or do the cowboys watch the cattle in the field? Cowboy roundup? Yep. So do they count? Do they give them water? Uh, do they take them to another ranch? Or do they watch the cattle graze? Uh, I was thinking that it was they take them to another ranch, but they um, that's got a different name. And because it's a roundup, there's only one reason you would round them up, and that would be to see how many of them are there. So Bad I'm going with the roundup. Correct. Yes. Oh, that is what the cowboy roundup is. There you go. I feel like I should declare that my daughter does show jumping, not rodeo. Mm -hmm. This is different. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Well, you guys are doing great. Yeah. Um, stressful. Yeah. I uh, I could have given you a horse question there, but I thought I'd make it a little bit more difficult. Thank you. I do have a horse, horse question somewhere nice. in here. All right. All right. Next question, Brennan Kelly. I'll just remind everybody of the categories. We have all things cowboy, stampede, and country music. Where are we going, Brendan? Uh, go with the, what did what did you just get? He, he just he, he just did all cowboy. things cowboy. No, about how many does he? It's six many? five. Oh, how many? Five. He has six points, okay. and you have and you have five. It's been a one point game this uh, entire. Then I'll go with uh, country music for two cans. Two cans. Here's a tough one. This Alberta country singer broke records mm. with an enormously long tour in 2017. 112 shows. We were that song tour. What country music star is singing on that tour? Is it, I'll give you, these are all from Alberta. Ali, Paul Brandt, Brett Kissel, or High Valley? Um, I don't know anything about Alberta in general, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> he says as they broadcast on two stations yeah. in Alberta. Thanks, yeah. Brendan. Hey there. Hey there. We got a the big HQR. country. I get it. Um, I'll go to the text line. Uh -oh. Go to the text line? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let me, uh, let me go over. Okay. So we got one text so far. Uh, and that answer hey, it's is popped uh, in your screen for, there. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's uh, for High Valley. Eric says High Valley. That's the only one so far with the answer to this question. Do you want to run with that one, or do you want to wait for some more? Um, just give it like one more second here. Okay, oh, we need one more text. We got to confirm or deny Brendan here. We got to eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Uh, what were the options again? Ali, Brett Kissel, then you said Paul, Paul Brandt, and then and High, Valley? High Valley. All right. Well, nobody's texting because I, it's, it's it a might take question. a second to get through, That's, right? Well, it's because hey, I said I didn't The person with the right about... answer has one of those old flip phones where they yeah. got to go A, B, C, D, E, F. It's because <laughs> I said I knew nothing about Alberta, <laughs> so now they don't want to help me. Oh, no. that's fair. Yeah. That's true. And nobody in Ontario knows anything about Alberta either, so they're not going to help. <laughs> Brennan's from Southern Ontario. Let me explain the story. Oh, there we go. You got two more texts came in. Um, um, okay, one says, I thought a roundup was when you brand cattle. Uh, counting, I think that's the same thing, Dale. Thank you for that text. And then Clark says, okay. Paul Brandt. Well, so in the, Paul Brandt. 
interest of time, I guess I'll just go with Clark's text, Paul Brandt. Paul Brandt. Oh, wait, is, no, no, no. Can no, I go with no, Glenn's now? Because no, Glenn no, came in with a different no, answer. I want to go with Glenn. No, I'm sorry. You locked in your answer, and that answer is incorrect. It is not High Valley. Shane, you've got five seconds to steal the answer. Do you know it? We Were That Song was by Brett Kissel, sir. Brett Kissel is correct. Yes. Brett well, why Kissel. is there a buzzer on the end of the five? Oh, I get it. Because the time's up. Yeah. Okay. We're out of time. It yeah, sounded yeah, like yeah, you got, got it, it wrong, but yeah. Yeah, no. That There you go. We got our first steal of game show. Oh, damn. Actually, oh. surprised. Yeah, there is a lot Lots of text, of text now, now coming in. Uh, so, yes, that damn was. Delay. I should have turned the delay off. 100, 112 uh, <laughs> shows on that tour. And Shane now with a commanding lead of eight yes. to five. And Shane, oh. you go next. You can well, seal the deal. This we, is the last okay. question. Probably the last question that we have. And okay. uh, if you get it wrong, Brennan could steal it. All right. So let's go for uh, all things cowboy rodeo stuff for one can. <laughs> for one can. Uh, oh, heck, that, that means I win. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's just Even if I get it wrong, what is the most yes. common kind of leather found on cowboy boots? Cowhide? Alligator, ostrich, or kangaroo? <laughs> I love one can questions. They're I'm gonna crushable. go cowhide, Bob. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> kangaroo? Oh my god! Kangaroo leather is a real thing on cowboy boots. So Shane has one. Can I read you guys one of the questions I had prepared? The oh, most sure. difficult question here. This is a real thing. I'm gonna surprised if either of you can answer it. There is a comic book, a real comic book, involving the Calgary Stampede. So, some superheroes were fighting a battle at the Midway. A villain locks the Midway Stampede Carnival, and a bunch of heroes have to come to the rescue. What hero saved the Calgary Stampede? A real comic book. Is it Batman, Wolverine, and the X-Men, Spider-Man, or Captain Canuck? Green Lantern. It's not Green Lantern. (laughs) I don't know. I tell you. <laughs> yes, it was Wolverine and the X Men. There is an actual X Men issue called Shootout at the Stampede, where no Wolverine way. saves the Stampede because Wolverine is from Brooks, Alberta. Fun fact. Really? There you go. Wow. Yes, like Wolverine life? is a Canadian wow. superhero, and he's my height, so he's therefore a pretty great superhero in my eyes. <laughs> well, have you ever been to Brooks, Alberta? Uh, I have not actually. It's a people are there are amazing, kind, wonderful walk in the liquor store. They will greet you. But dear God, the meat processing plant, does it ever smell bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like Prince George and the, the pulp. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Really great smell. Great people. Well, there you go, Shane. So much fun there. Shane wins with a commanding victory on Game Show. That's right. Thanks for listening to The Shift and the game show called Game Showy. Please remember to get your pets spayed or neutered. I think just instead of celebrating, we should announce the winner one more time, Ryan. Oh, come on, man. Like one time. This is The Shift Podcast. Well, here we are, summertime, and one thing we always chat about on The Shift is things like forest fires and all the stuff that we need to pay attention to. I mean, I don't know. This is selfish, I guess. But when you go on vacation in BC, 
and you've got to say a week in, I don't know, Salmon Arm, maybe Sycamore, someplace beautiful. But it's smoky the whole time, and you can't even see to the end of the block. That's not fun for anybody. At the same time, though, it is quite a remarkable process, and that's why Chris Harley is here. Um, and yes, it's Harley with an H. Let's just uh, acknowledge the elephant in the room with the famous name, um, not with an F. Um, Chris, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, so you are a professor at UBC. You do ecosystems and all of that stuff. I don't know, Chris, I thought it would be kind of interesting to get your perspective on on these forest fires, not necessarily, um, you know, about the fire itself, but we don't ever talk about what happens after the fire. And I, I find it quite amazing when you drive through an area that's been just destroyed, you know, by fire. And then you see how incredibly green and beautiful it starts to regrow. And I'll give you an example. My sister lives in Fort McMurray. I grew up in Fort McMurray. And we went up there uh, earlier in the month for her birthday. It was her 50th birthday. And I've been up there twice, I think, since that fire ripped through a few years ago. This time, though, there are leaves. This year, there are leaves back. This is the real full-on it's thinned out, but you can, it's actually quite beautiful because you can see the rolling hills more than you ever could without the canopy there, but now it's all green again. So what do we need to know about how important and beautiful some of this stuff is? Because I don't think we ever look at all sides of it. No, and, and we often hear about the fire as it's happening and the immediate consequences and, you know, did people die and how many? And we, we think about those, you know, immediate issues. But we don't necessarily revisit those places, um, you know, in the in the years that follow to see. And I, I had a very similar experience to what you were just describing, where um, some friends had a cabin south of Santa Cruz in California, and a very large fire burned that down. And I was able to revisit um, last summer and was surprised at how many wildflowers are blooming on the forest floor, and you know, even some of the trees that looked sure as as heck dead uh, before are re-sprouting up in the crowns. So ecosystems are pretty resilient, and to some degree, they rely on these types of disturbances to stay healthy. Well, that is true, right? I mean, there is a reason why in the national parks and stuff, you see things like controlled burns and trying to obviously mitigate bigger fires with stuff that maybe has some trouble, but at the same time, trying to inspire Mother Nature to do what she's best at. You said wildflowers, and that always amazes me, hey? You know, I try to grow wildflowers, so I, I love them, and so I have seeds and everything else, and they're so disobedient. They, um, when you want to grow them, they don't grow. And then all of a sudden a year later, just boop, there they are. So they must, do they survive the wildfire or do they get re sort of the seeds get moved around after the fire? How does that all work? Birds? Uh, Some are column A and some are column B. Um, There are certain pine trees that are so fire adapted that their seeds don't actually sprout unless there's been a fire. Oh, wow. Um, but, uh, you know, a nice example from, uh, uh, British Columbia area, the people who are familiar with this area will know fireweed, the, the real pretty purple flowers that bloom in forest clearings. That plant got its name, not because the flowers look like flames, but because they come in after disturbances like fires have happened. And if you watch them after the, the flowers have bloomed, they make these really fluffy little, little seeds, sort of like dandelions do, mm-hmm. that can drift with the wind. And, and so, you know, even a really large fire um, that, that might be 100 kilometers across, you know, the wind is going to carry those types of seeds a great distance. You can have flowers like that showing up in the middle of a big, you know, burned area uh, quite quickly after a fire has happened. So, 
in that particular case, they've got to come from somewhere. They sort of bloom and grow after the fire. Do they lie dormant for that long or are they just a plant without a flower and then all of a sudden they show up? Now, it depends on the species. So some things have, it's, it's called a, a seed bank. So it's it, literally there are seeds that are in the soil, like in a bank account. And then when there's an opportunity, like, oh, all of a sudden the trees above you have burned and there's more light reaching the ground, then then they'll sprout and they'll, they'll do well. Um, in other cases, you know, with... Uh, uh, some of the the plants that produce berries that birds like to eat, then it's the birds that are uh, doing yeah. the service of bringing those seeds in and pooping them out in an area where they can do well. Yeah. It is not remarkable when you think of it from that perspective. I mean, we always think of the ecosystem as things we can see. Uh, mosquitoes is another thing. I hate mosquitoes. Don't want to talk about them, but they can lie dormant for years, right? And then all of a sudden there's enough water, there's enough warmth, and then poof, there's a mosquito. It's interesting to think that, you know, mixed into all of this stuff that we can see is a whole bunch of stuff that's just sitting there waiting too, right? That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in the bottom of ponds, there's, there's little, uh, little zooplankton that can be in there for centuries, just in in this little resting stage. And then you get the right disturbance that stirs them back into the water and out they come. Really? Hey, yeah, that's amazing. Okay. So while post fire, post all of these things, you know, we, you know, I, we struggle with the terminology that gets used today in the environmental world is that, you know, everyone, everything's got a catchy name now, right? Um, you know, heat waves used to be heat waves, we used to get these locked in temperatures, but now we've got to call it something that seems to be more nefarious. Like it's got to scare everybody. Uh, but these things have been occurring for a really, really long time. Now, trending of climate change obviously is evidently mathematically there. So I'm not disputing that. But these things are really a, an important part of changing the ecosystem. You were sharing with me before we got started here that, you know, if it weren't for inconsistencies like this, we might call it tragedy, but for the mother nature, that's, it's just part of the another cog in the wheel. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the analogies I like is, is, is heaven really paradise if it never changes? Yeah. Cause people would, would just get bored if it, I think if it was just the same thing. Well, um, I say that, it. right? Like I live close to the Rocky mountains. I don't go yeah. there every day. People travel all around the world to come here every day. People live by Niagara Falls. They don't go to Niagara Falls every day, right? People live by the beach. They don't go to the beach every day, right? So it, it doesn't change. You're right. And I, I know people in Hawaii that have said it's been two years since I've been to the beach. So I think you have a real good point there. Yeah. Well, and and ecosystems rely on some degree of change because everything is is sort of slowly. Well, th- there's a lot of interactions which are positive, you know, so having certain plants, you know, that's good for the birds that eat the seeds and it's good for the insects that pollinate the flowers uh, and vice versa. Having the insects is good for the plants, but plants are busy trying to, you know, catch all the sunlight and not let the other plants have it. And if you kept the conditions the same for long enough, you start to lose biodiversity because that competition between plants or between animals, you know, there's going to be losers eventually. But if you have more of a winding road where, you know, in some years it's a little better for certain species and in other years, it's a little better for others. That balance is what maintains the really rich uh, biodiversity we have in Canada. What it, it's a bit of a wrestling match the way that you describe it, right? You get these trees that have these big canopies in some place in the world and they just 
they steal all the sunlight, right? And there's nothing but grows below it because there's no sunlight that gets through. In fact, if there's a, a windstorm and there's a break in a branch, you can see very quickly once the sunlight gets through, all of a sudden something starts growing below it. Maybe I just answered my own question. Um, but you also get that with pine needles, right? Sort of poisoning the ground below the tree yep, so nothing yep. else can grow. So how does it change? Is it just fire or is it really this um, dramatic effect of windstorms, lightning, fires? Uh, because it seems to me like the dominant species, once they get a hold, boy, they can get a grip on that area. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's all of that and, and landslides and, and you know, the, the, the whole list of things that could reset a particular area back down to, you know, it doesn't have to reset all the way to bare soil, like a massive, you know, mountainside landslide collapse mm-hmm. or volcanic eruption. But, you know, even a single tree blowing over in a, in a windstorm creates opportunities uh, for other things. And that's one of the hallmarks of, of old growth forest. We think that means that every single tree is really old. Otherwise, you know, why would we call it old growth? What it actually means is that it has been the way it is for long enough that there are some areas with those really old trees, but then, you know, little patches in there that are brand new because something has just fallen over and having that mix of, of old and new spaces is, um, you know, what allows a lot of different species to take advantage of, of those conditions. We talk about reforestation quite a bit. I remember when I was a kid, right? Planting trees. That was the big one. It wasn't about the logging so much as it was the reforestation of was not happening back then. Um, now the science has really, uh, you know, sped that, part up which is cool it's cool to see that you know you can see it in the hillsides in bc um that you know where some things have grown back again when we talk about those ancient trees right those really big 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 old ones is the biggest crime i mean they get used for our lives i mean there's there's no denying the industrial part or industrious part of humans using them but is the real crime the fact that those things are so old and we're taking them down um or is it that they're not falling over and recontributing back to that area specifically, right? Like an ancient tree, I would imagine, gets blown down, it gets old, it gets blown down in a storm. Now it becomes the home of how many animals, how many bugs, it starts to feed other trees. Uh, maybe some of those branches re-sprout and grow. Is it really the deforestation of these big old ones, or is it more the fact that they're not able to recontribute specifically that local ecosystem? Yeah, well, again, it's a little bit of both. So a a very old tree is just going to have things that a younger tree doesn't just because it's, you know, upper branches are so old. And in some cases there's, there's, you know, standing water up there that can have, you know, strange aquatic life, the hundred and some feet off the ground, just wouldn't expect. And younger trees haven't developed those little, little never heard that before. That's so cool. But you're, you're absolutely right. When a tree falls in the forest, sort of the old, forestry, you know, way of doing things is, oh, well, that's, that's gone to waste unless we get in there and turn it into lumber. And we now know that that is returning nutrients to the, to the forest and is, you know, important in that way. And you can walk into the woods, uh, you know, just outside of Vancouver and occasionally you'll find a whole bunch of cedars growing just in a perfectly straight row. And they're there because there had been a fallen log a hundred years ago that was providing the nutrients for those saplings. And they just did really well right in that straight little line. And now you can see where that nurse log had been. A nurse log. That's an interesting phrase. So um, that must be why in logging today, I didn't, I invite you want to talk about logging, but this really has me curious. Um, the uh, but this uh, but I mean that must make sense, right? I know that they are more much more particular in leaving lots of the junk behind, 
um, you know, because they used to basically clear cutting was basically just take everything and try to make something of it. Um, yeah. And now they're far more particular for the rich trees and leave some of the other ones down there to um, to either stay standing or to uh, do that. What you, uh, you nurse nurse other trees, I suppose. Yeah, and 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 we're realizing that with forestry and with fisheries and with with all sorts of you know things that we're doing because we do need wood. Um, and we do need food, and we get a lot of that from the natural environment, salmon and, and, and other things. Um, and you can still harvest a lot and meet other goals at the same time. So uh, if you harvest a little bit less, there might actually be really big gains in, in biodiversity or in the sustainability of because you don't want to you know accidentally collapse a fish stock like what happened with cod uh, on the East Coast. Uh, so we're, we're still sort of learning uh, the balance of how we can do the things that we need to do, um, you know, to have, you know, happy, productive lives as people, uh, but still have natural ecosystems that are intact and functioning and continuing to do things for us, like producing all the oxygen we breathe and, and filtering the water that we that we use and everything else that nature does. When you're driving through the mountains or, or through a, a place that has burnt out in a fire, um, you know, this is your nerd this is your nerdiness right here, right? Like you, this is where you get all excited. Be careful. Don't get me yeah. started. Yeah. Right. Well, no, that's okay. We <laughs> welcome the nerd here. Um, so, but you, you drive, what do you look for when you're driving through? Um, I guess the ones that I think about the most for me was driving around Invermere, BC, sort of that stretch, uh, South of golden. And, and, you know, there's been tons of fires through there all the time. There's always fires through there. It just seems like a really naturally occurring place for fires. But what do you look for as the, you know, in your geekiness of all this stuff? What gets you most excited when you see that stuff? Uh, well, my my dad is just an avid bird watcher. So, so if I'm with him, we're looking for birds and listening for birds. But if it's just me... Um, the stuff that I that I usually study is on uh, like tide pool uh, plants and animals at low tide, which are little things you sort of poke your nose down and, and, and pay attention to. So I like walking between the trees and just looking at all the crazy mosses and, and, and you know, lichens and mushrooms that are growing on the bark and, you know, just the really beautiful patterns of all that little stuff. And that that's it's sort of one of the indicators of a healthy ecosystem is is all that little stuff that we normally would just, you know, glance right past. Is that there? How is all that doing? That's amazing. OK, so well, let's take that and translate that to the ocean then, um, since you uh, did say tide pools and all the little things. What are the little creatures that you get so excited about there? Oh, um, well, I, I'll, I'll sort of frame it in, in the. Uh, in terms of the big heat wave we had last summer, uh, which killed you know so many uh, yeah, uh, lots of animals, animals eh? on our shores, yeah, it was it, it was a huge stinky mess uh, that's still in the in the process of recovering, but it is recovering. It's it's really interesting to watch that happen. Um, and in some cases, like on a really good low tide, that's when you can get down to see the really weird, colorful stuff, the, the little sponges, and there's soft corals right at the bottom edge of the, of the intertidal zone and the starfish, and, and just the sort of the weird and wonderful ways of being alive that are, are kind of foreign to our experiences as things that live on land. 
So I really like looking at all that stuff, but even just in a, in a little patch of, of muscle bed, it's a, it's a pretty humble habitat, right? But, but in there, there's, there's hermit crabs and there's iridescent little worms and there's sea cucumbers and just all kinds of, of uh, little creatures that, that are, you know, just hundreds, hundreds of species that will live in a square meter of, of muscle bed. Okay. So you have a little tidal pool. There's a little fish in there. Okay, you're, you know, you, you, you do the ecosystems and you know all the things. So you know full well that if that fish dies in that, that, that pool or it dries up and probably just ripe to be picked by a bird, right? Mm-hmm. Do you let that happen for its natural course or do you try to save the fish and get it back to the water? This is curious. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on whether my kids are with me. Oh. Um, you know, it's, it's like when you're walking on the sidewalk and, and, and uh, you know, it's rained overnight, but it's dry now. And you see the poor earthworm out there and, and you know, the kids are like, dad, save the worm, save the worm. I'll, I'll totally do it. But if I'm just sort of by myself, I'm like, you know, who's really going to appreciate this worm is the robin who's going to find it, you know, 20 minutes after I've, I've gone past. And it, and unless it's, you know, something that's really endangered or something that we've destabilized in some way that we really now ought to probably invest in helping return it to, uh, you know, a, a, a more stable condition, um, I will usually let nature take its course. <sighs> but we humanize them. We want to save all the little beasts. We do. This is so good. Um, what do we, what do we need to know? I mean, I guess what I'm hearing from this is that I'm hearing that we really just need to be present and trust Chris. That's what I hear. I hear that, you know what? Our vanity kicks in, of course. We don't want to see burnt out hillsides. And obviously, we don't want to be the cause of these things for sure. But it sounds like responsibility and there's progress happening. And it sounds like we also just need to trust in the process a little bit. Yeah. And and I think there's scales here, too. And um, you know, climate change is a, is a big, scary thing, um, and it's depressing, and it, it sort of makes people want to throw up their hands and say, well, we're helpless in the face. You know, we can't get China to stop burning coal, or, you know, we can't even really manage within Canada as quickly as you might want. But um, on uh, first, spending time in nature is, is good for us. There, there are studies that show that that just makes people happier. And when they get to, to spend a little bit of time outside um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, the most beautiful remote wilderness in the Rockies, it could be the, the local city park with, with a few trees and getting out and experiencing that will also sort of make people love nature and want to protect it. So I, I'm always excited when I see people out, you know, at the beach or going for hikes and uh, there's also sort of the, the scales at which things are happening. And it's, it's true. We, we have disturbances and, you know, it's been warmer at various times in the past, it, but it's happening so quickly now and over large areas. That's where I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit just to give nature enough time to keep up with changes that we're inadvertently inflicting on the world. Yeah. Humans are kind of like a speedboat and mother nature is a little bit more like the love boat, right? A little um, bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I, um, I love that you said that. I think that humans, we get one thing incredibly wrong. We often go travel to these beautiful beaches halfway around the world so we can go on vacation. It feels so good to go on vacation when in fact, I think what I've learned, and this is my hippie self, I get it, um, but I think we take our shoes off. I think that's the first place we take our shoes off is we go on vacation and we take our shoes off and we walk around in the beach and energetically or something mystical, that's fine, um, but something happens. I think we get reconnected and grounded out again. And I think that if you just maybe take your shoes off in your front yard, even um, when you're at the park and, and, and start there, I think that has a big impact on our, our relationship 
with what goes on in the world and we we don't have to i mean it's beautiful i love palm trees don't get me wrong but we don't always have to that's not the only i think we the reason what we get out of it i think we misunderstand maybe that's the best way to say it yeah i love it this is so good chris thanks for being here buddy oh it's been a pleasure this is the shift podcast Okay, um, let's go all the way across to Europe. Stepan Berko joins us um, uh, from Ukraine. And I, I last time I said where he was, I, I got it wrong, but then I got it right again. And joining us now, uh, uh, Stepan, how are you? Hey, hello, Shane. It's great to see you. Hear you. Hear thank you very much for uh, yeah. Thank thanks you. very much for being here and for coming to join us and uh, help us uh, have a conversation. So here in Canada, we have had a long weekend because of uh, celebration of our Canada Day, and uh, then a few days off. So we haven't been able to catch up in quite some time. So I thought, uh, you know, I can introduce that. You know, if you're just joining us, you're hearing this for the first time. Over the last you know four months, Stepan has been here consistently with us. Um, he's an advocate. Um, you know, his work in, in law and, and justice for, for Ukrainians. And um, from Kiev, was in Lviv, uh, separated from his wife and his child for a very, very long time, then moved back to Kiev. And uh, things started to get pretty hot in Kiev with rockets and, and things changing. That was the, the last conversation that we had, Stepan. I was wondering if you can catch us up a little bit for those who haven't heard. Um, yeah, Shane. So, uh, since we've, we've talked last time, uh, situation in Kiev, uh, it's more or less okay. So no new missiles, um, hitting this part of the country, but, uh, so many other places being hit by Russians, especially those cities that are not far from the front lines, like Kharkiv and Mykolaiv, um, they're constantly under fire and uh, more and more people are fleeing. Uh, I'm not even talking about those uh, cities on the front lines like Lysychansk, Severodonetsk, now it's Slovyansk. Uh, they are absolutely being destroyed by Russian army as they move forward. And um, the mood of people um, is kind of... Um, you know, uh, what what can be your mood when you when you hear news that your uh, army has to uh, withdraw from some cities because they're under constant shelling? So it's not very uh, cheerful, but still at the same time we're happy that our troops managed to withdraw from some areas and uh, still. Uh, save their lives and save their capability to fight back further. What's the tone when you sit down and have conversation with your friends about losing these territories? There are victories too that have happened, so we will talk about those. But the you know what's the overall tone? Because you know it seems to be that seems to be the mo, uh, the motive of. Uh, of Russia is to literally just try to obliterate so nobody can even be around anymore. That must be discouraging um, for Ukrainians as a whole. So how, do, how does that sit with your, with your colleagues and your friends? Um, 
you see for us it doesn't matter which part of the country Russia is occupying so if they get it like one extra city or town uh, it's the same as it was uh, four months ago it's uh, occupation uh, at the same time we understand that uh, in order to save lives uh, our uh, armed forces they have to maneuver and they have to be smart so uh, it's all, it's all, we, we always have to remember that we're not fighting only for the territories, but more of, first and foremost for the people, those uh, that are living in these cities and those who are fighting in our um, armed forces. So I would say that uh, uh, people, people are happy that our troops managed to withdraw with uh, not so many casualties. But at the same time, you know, it's it's the same feeling as always. So you're trying to uh, live, uh, if you're a civilian, you're trying to live your life as usual, uh, having conversations, having coffee. But this war uh, and these uh, news about people being killed, um, it's always on the background. So you, you can't come, you can't ever come back to, to, to your, um, you know, uh, use you to to the usual way of living and not having this uh, war on the background. That must be so difficult, man. Uh, just to have that looming and hanging over all the time. Okay, Snake Island. Snake Island was the place where uh, Russia uh, warship turned to radio contact with Snake Island. Uh, it's down sort of in the western corner of the Black Sea. And that's where you heard the um, the FU uh, statements from the Ukrainian soldiers. And then, you know, the, the, the shells fired and, and taking it over. Now, the stories that I've read are that that is now back in Ukrainian hands. Um, not really that strategic, but certainly symbolic, Stepan. Yeah, so Russians, they withdrew from the Snake Island. Um I wouldn't say that Ukrainians, uh, that we are able to put our troops on the island because they would be, you know, a constant target for Russian missiles and uh, uh, aircrafts. But uh, just the latest news from today morning news is that uh, Ukrainian military, they have uh, managed to put a big Ukrainian flag on that island. So even Amazing. though they are not able to be, you know, constantly present, um, on the island, uh, they are controlling it via uh, our missiles, uh, our own uh, military equipment, so Russians cannot come back. So yes, uh, I agree, it's a symbolic sign that uh, with the military aid from Western democracies, uh, including Canada, we can uh, withstand this pressure from Russia, we can even move, uh, force them to withdraw um only in places where russia are concentrating like 10 times more equipment than we have we have to uh step back because we worry about people who are fighting uh, unlike russians um the things are obviously changing things are obviously uh, a little bit different and when i am so far away here in western canada you know the the airplanes that come into our airport you know we often get big ones that come in here or there or whatever uh there was a belgian 
um, airplane came in. It was an A400, which is a, one of those super big uh, propeller cargo planes. We've had Globemasters flying in and out of here. I sent you pictures, uh, Stefan, of the the uh, Antonov 124 Ruslan, which was is the smaller baby brother of the big 225, which was destroyed. But the 124, the Antonov 124, has been here a bunch of times and around Vancouver and other places in Canada, too. So what, whatever is going on when it comes to these big military cargo planes, I, I don't personally recall ever seeing so many of them in transit moving things around. Is Is that... Like, is that encouraging to you to hear that so far away things are adjusting, things are moving uh, for you? Are you seeing a result of that? I mean, in your professional career, you guys hear an awful lot about, you know, things that are coming and, and help that's there. What? How does that sort of all fit into the day-to-day sort of, we would say, the, the cliche where a metaphor might be the nuts and bolts that come into uh, trying to fend off or at least stall Russia until Ukraine can really push back and kick them out? Uh, You see, I'm not in the military, so I cannot uh, tell you anything uh, of how how Ukrainian Ukrainian armed forces are feeling this or not. But uh, in Ukrainian media, uh, we receive more and more evidence of this um, uh, foreign equipment uh, working in the East, for example, the latest news um, was that uh, we uh, we received these high mares uh, missile, multiple missile launchers from uh, uh, some countries, and they are already working in the east, and that helped us to destroy um, ammunition depots uh, deep in the occupied territory. So, for the last week. Uh, We've seen a number of videos and uh, some information from our official armed forces that uh, the, the, this equipment helps us to you know, penetrate the occupied territory very deep and then stalling the, the logistics of Russian armed forces. So it seems that um, we can see the results, but still the quantity of this equipment it's still not enough to you know turn this tide turn this russian uh wave of um, uh of of their offensive in the donbass to to at least uh you know stall them and then move forward to counter attacking hmm. uh, some good news though in the progression of ukraine joining the eu and all those things different countries have started to step up including canada to uh, to really get that idea moving. That must be encouraging uh, for you as well to hear there. Um, with all of this going on, I mean, it's it's such a, I, I don't know, uh, it's such a, a different life from day to day. You're, you're trying to rebuild an economy. You're trying to get people working. And at the same time, not very far away, there is all of this nasty that continues uh, to happen there. And I, I was curious, Stepan, without giving away, names or family secrets or your family or someone else's family, um, feel free to be vague. How hard is it today? Some families, I'm sure, have Russian relatives. Um, is it safe to say that this has literally broken families apart? Mm, yes. Um, so it differs from the region. And obviously in Western Ukraine, uh, it's, uh, you know, families have less ties with family ties with Russia. 
But uh, here in central and eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, um, many, many have relatives in Russia. Moreover, uh, many of those relatives are ethnic Ukrainians uh, who during the Soviet times or even after the 90s, they uh, lived in Russia or had a job there. And uh, obviously, a vast majority of those, or I would say even probably like 90% or whatever, are under this Russian uh, propaganda influence. And it's absolutely impossible to, you know, talk to them because it's like you're living in uh, two different worlds. And uh, I know from the experience of... Uh, some of my friends and colleagues, when you try to talk uh, to these people, you hope that this will change how they see the situation. And, you know, you have this mm, you know, way of thinking that if more people understand what really is going on than in Ukraine, then they will influence their government and they will stop the war. This is not how it works in Russia. People have no influence over their government. And it seems they, that they don't really believe that they have it. Uh, and uh, so, so talking to these people doesn't work. And it seems that in many uh, cases, uh, these talks just stopped. So hmm. I, I would agree that uh, some, some families, they are torn apart because of this war. Stephen Berko is in Kiev, Ukraine, and um, I don't know. I, I'm assuming you're working from home today, uh, Stephen. Can you? I can. I can hear children playing in the background. Can you go closer to that window? I'm wondering if we can um, hear a little bit more of that sort of that playful, those playful sounds outside, because I, th there's a bit of a, a juxtaposition here of what's going on. Is that okay? Can you get closer to that th those sounds yeah, for no me? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, while, while Stepan does that, here's the headline on the BBC. Ukraine war, 21,000 alleged war crimes being investigated, says the prosecutors. Up to two to 300 war crimes a day are being reported, right? Staggering. And then you hear those sounds in the background. Can you possibly pop your phone or, or, or wherever you're close to there? See if we can hear some of those sounds. Because, of course, it's the one time the children are quiet. <laughs> I don't Isn't know that if the case? You heard it well, yeah, but <laughs> we can hear them. We can hear them in the background, right? And um, through the conversation. And isn't that uh, such an example of the way this is? Right? You have the adults that are dealing with stuff that is going to change the course of Ukraine forever. Regardless, if Ukraine goes and they fight back every inch of territory and they take it all back, regardless, this is changed forever. And then you have all of these beautiful babies who um, they're the ones that have to live with it. And so it must be difficult to sort of hear those sounds. And maybe it's a, a beautiful reminder of why you have to fight and why you have to, you know, do the justice reform and the, the, all the things your colleagues do. Um, and yet um, it's so terrible on the other side. I just, I guess there's no real question to step on. I just wonder if there's uh, some thoughts that you might have on that. Uh-oh, did I lose him? I might have lost him. It's because I asked him to walk around. Well, there he is. I got you back. Yeah, so when you, when you see okay. children playing uh, on on the playgrounds, you 
you understand that this this is probably what this fight is for 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 the way we want to live and for these children and it's really hard to see how many of those children uh, are losing their fathers their mothers and their childhood uh, because of this war um, you know Roman Ratushnei uh, a, y- a young soldier who died uh, just a few weeks ago and about whom I was telling you uh, mm-hmm. in in his one of his last posts on Facebook he said uh, that uh, I mean th- this saying is uh, um, maybe very very straightforward but it's it's, it's, it's true. I mean, it, it's the way it is. He says, he said, the more Russians we kill today, the less Russians our children have to kill in, you know, coming years. It, it sounds really harsh, but unfortunately, our history, Ukrainian history of last two or three hundred years, it, it shows that this is probably uh, the way it is. And that is why many Ukrainian soldiers and, and people, you know, generally, saying that uh, there is no way we can, you know, pause this war and say, okay, this is the new line or this is the new border and we will we will have to live with it because we understand that this is this will only pause the war and this will only bring new atrocities and new uh, pain in, in, in five, three or ten years. And um, understanding this, their situation, that uh, it's like... Uh, Oh, did we lose that? Let's see if we can get it back. That's all right. We'll continue the thoughts. Our guest right now is Stepan Berko. He's in Kiev, Ukraine. We just got a little burp in the internet connection that we have to him. Um, it happens from time to time. And um, we'll get his continue. Uh, continue with your thoughts there, Stepan. Yeah, I said, um, I, I don't know where you lost me, but uh, this is, people understand that this is fight for existence. So either we fight and we exist and we live as a nation, as a country, or we lose, um, or we, and we and there are no Ukrainians and there are no uh, no life for for uh, for these children as Ukrainians. They would have to either become you know assimilated here when when Russia wins, or they will have to be assimilated in other countries. Um, and this is the the feeling that more and more people get. At least those who are more connected to the to the uh, military and uh, who understand what's really going on on the front lines. Uh, it's a remarkable story, and when you put it that way, um, you know it becomes undeniable. You know, stories of of some of the ugliest of humanity mixed with the sounds of children playing in the background boy it's it's hard to believe it, it, it it's it's very grounding it's chilling all of those words come to mind Stefan, when you talk about those things and i think that this is a good reminder of why we as uh, people outside have to trust that you know maybe the world can step up and maybe this time they can get it right and um I don't think I've ever told you before that I hope that you're wrong, but maybe I hope that you're wrong a little bit. And maybe this is the one time. It's naive of me, perhaps, because I'm so far away and I don't have the same family history that you do through this. But maybe I think in my heart, I want to say to you, I hope that you're wrong. And maybe this is the one time the world steps up, gets it right. And, and maybe it doesn't have to happen again. L- let's hope that's a that's a thing. 
I I I hope that I'm wrong as well. Uh, I hope that um, the world steps up. Uh, Ukrainians show their courage and uh, strength to withstand these uh, these hard times. And uh, I'm a religious person, so I also believe that God will help us to prevail in in these hard times as well. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, we do wish you all the blessings in the world, Esteban. So thank you very much for being a part of us and continuing to share your story with us here all across Canada on The Shift. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 